take the sound bite of me saying, oh, Japanese sound like constipated. <laughs> yeah. Right? And you yeah. take that out of context, that's a terrible, terrible thing to say. Sure. But in context, it's, it's playful. Right. And I think that this is one of the things we've lost. You know, in, in, I mean, I, I have said for years, nobody is remembered who conformed. No. If no. you want to be remembered, uh, and by the way, I, I understand the other side of that. I get both sides of that. There are many people who remembered who didn't conform who were assholes and bastards, yeah. and their name was Stalin and Hitler and Pol Pot yeah. and all the Idi Amin, and, you know, we can name them off. But also... We have Van Gogh, we've had, yeah. you know, we, we've had Beethoven, we've had the Sex Pistols, you know, we've yeah. had Elvis well, Presley, you know. Well, Dov, I mean, you remember the, the famous 19, was 1997, 98 campaign, Think Different, that Apple yes. did? So everybody in there from Gandhi to, you know, like to Einstein, to Isadora Duncan, to Amelia Earhart, can you imagine any of them working in a company you know, like, in, in, so, you know, the irony is that we, we admire and we, um, you know, think that these people are incredible and they are, but if they were inside of a corporate environment, you know, or any kind of conformist environment, they would be almost immediately repressed or let go, you know, oh, yeah. or they wouldn't be able to handle it. Yeah. You know, and, and it's the irony, we, we, at one level, we're like, we're so admire nonconformists and we do, on the other hand, everything possible to conform 90, 99% of the people <laughs> in any situation. Well, it's really interesting because we bring that back to what we were talking before about tribal. So yeah. as, uh, as you and I had talked about in a previous conversation, I was born in Northern England mm. um, and I was born in a ghetto. So I was born in abject poverty, violence, crime, addiction, all those things were around me. And I remember at 14 making the decision to leave. Mm-hmm. Clearly made that decision, told my mother who thought I would, you know, okay, whatever, you know, and I just made the decision. Mm-hmm. And when I was 20, I was coming on 21 and I had bought my ticket and I was going, I was leaving. And my mates are like, you can't leave. Mm-hmm. Why? Well, you know, we've got Boddington's Bitter. We've got the <laughs> pub. You know, we've got Man United and Man City and we've got this and you've got fish and chips and all your mates are here and all your family's here and all this. And I'm like, so what? Right, right. And what I noticed was this thing about that with a tribe is it's crabs in a bucket. Everybody's trying to pull you back into the bucket as you're oh, trying yeah. to climb out. Yep. And, but however, when you get out oh, yeah. and you make fame, then they claim you. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Then they want to claim you. While you're trying to get out of the bucket, everybody's going to pull you back in. And that's, to me, that is the foundation of resilience. Yeah. The foundation of resilience is in fighting off the the crabs that want to pull you back in the bucket so that you can actually become a dragon in the world. Yeah. And then when you do, you've got to know the same crabs that tried to pull you in the bucket would be bragging about how they were your mate and sat around the public. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's an international thing, by the way. I was, it, really oh, not, absolutely. I mean, you and I are thinking the same thing because um, I was telling my daughter the other night that there was a very famous Jap- a fashion designer in Japan named Issei Miyake. Um, famous also because he was in Hiroshima when the bomb dropped and he survived it. Thought he was go- thought he was going to die early, and obviously, but he was in a basement when it happened. He just got very lucky that he survived it. Anyway, he became a very famous designer, 
But he mentioned, I saw in an interview that he had to leave Tokyo and move to Paris and open his own atelier and become famous within the context of France and, you know, the French, you know, and the Parisian press. And then he was welcomed back like, you know, a hero to Tokyo, but he had to establish himself out there because no one was taking him seriously within his own backyard. And so I think it's just human nature. There's a tendency, there's a, you know, there's a tendency again, going back to companies, every company I've worked in, we go out of our way to hire the best and brightest. And then we immediately assume that they're, not as good as they, we thought and that someone else outside is still going to be better. So grass is always greener mentality. And, um, and to your point, when someone does make it, then they're like, Oh yeah, yeah I worked with that person. You know, like, you know, then, yeah. I remember when he was doing, you know, and it, I remember like uh, Charles Bukowski, the famous poet of, of LA, he, you know, he said his whole life was, he was considered to be an alcoholic slob um, that, you know, was a loser working in the, in the post office for like, I don't know, over 15 years, you know, so that way you could have a job and write. He goes, everybody always made fun of his poetry, you know, always thought, you know, that he was an idiot to do what he was doing until, of course, he made it and Barfly, the movie came out. And then suddenly all the loser history of his life became the stuff of legend. Yes. It became the mythology from which he arose. But in the moment that you're going through it, it doesn't feel like mythology. It just feels like, why are you Again, this is going back to the issue of creativity requires freedom or it's tied into freedom. Yeah. You know, and, and again, I think it goes back to your mates probably thought, well, who does he think he is? Oh, absolutely. You know, like, why is he special, more special than us? You know, which threatens their reality, right? Exactly. Now we're back at the identity crisis thing exactly. about being outside the tribe. One of the things in the speaker world we say is that uh, there's, a, there's an old sort of saying in the speaker world, which is, a wise man is a fool in his own village. Oh yeah. So like, you know, I can, you know, there's no point in me talking about what it is that I do and how I do it and what the philosophy is behind it to the people who are in my hometown. They just don't get it. You know, yeah. and I have, I have a better saying, particularly for those of us who are parents, because yeah. um, we usually discover this when we have teenagers. Fortunately, my kids are all adults now, so that's okay. But mm-hmm. um, a wise man is a fool in his own village and a freaking idiot in his own family. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? You, you know, you're yeah. really wise as dad until you're an idiot. And yeah. then you become an idiot. And then there's a little bit more time and you become a wise man again. But it takes a while. And I think that's very much what it is. And, and I think most people can't bear the moment of being an idiot so they conform. They can't yeah. bear being on the outside so they conform because we are so driven driven to fit in and if we fit in i have to shave a piece of myself off to wedge myself in to fit in Mm -hmm. but when i belong i am the dragon i spread my wings because the world has waited for me yeah but in order to do that i actually have to shave off what was conformed yeah but you know what's interesting is going back to that 30 year old executive that i was talking to i said part of the problem that he's struggling with is that as we get older we tend to think well being an adult means having a proper job. You know, being an adult means that I have, I have to sublimate who I am. And you end up in getting titles. You're like, I'm a dad, I'm mm-hmm. a boss, I'm a yep. husband. And yep. then, it, then you suddenly realize, well, who am I? And because you've, you've completely, you know, identified now with titles and not who you are. But the biggest problem is that people then feel indulgent if they practice guitar. They feel indulgent if they 
draw. They feel like they're taking, they, especially like women feel terrible if they're trying to write a book and they're not, you know, quote, being a good mother, you know, like, and, you know, providing, you know, cause they're being selfish by spending an hour and a half sitting in their room writing those kind of things uh, are the other uphill battle of creativity. Number one, you're not sure what you're doing. It's the tabula rasa. And you're, you're like, am I, what am I doing? Is it insane? You know, like, or is it, is it great? I have no idea. And then on top of that, it makes sense. You have the crabs pulling you down, you know, yep. like on top. And then you also feel guilty. Like, should I be doing this? Mm-hmm. It's the world. I mean, and then like when I was writing my book, uh, a part of my brain was like, who am I? Why would anybody want to hear my shit? Like, it, right. what makes me an authority? You know, like, and then I thought, well, you know, I was writing the book um, essentially to be letters to, to a young poet, you know, but for designers. And then I realized it was Kitchen Confidential over time, you know, for adults. Um, because I realized I wanted to have uh, a book that I wish I had gotten that will, you know, nothing, you got to make your, your own mistakes. That's to make the mistake cool. about that. But here are principles that came out of, or maxims that came out of, you know, accidents and mistakes and, and fuck ups, you know, that I did in lurching my way forward. And if you can number either a avoid them, great, or two, probably more than anything else, you're not alone. You know, like, and, and that's the thing that most people feel is it terrible isolation. I, I was very fortunate and not, not to show my book now, but I, I gave it to, um, I wrote a copy to um, an Englishman who's a, an executive um, who lives in London and actually lives in New York now. And, um, you know, I thought, okay, you know, he works with technology people and perhaps this will not reverberate with him. And he actually emailed me this long email about how much uh, it meant to him. And he sat down and read it from 7 a.m. on a Saturday morning and got up at 1 p.m. and was done and read it in one sitting. And I was like, wow, it's fantastic. And then about a week and a half later, I got an email from some young person I didn't know. And this gentleman had given the book to her and she had written me that she goes, I'm a 21 year old singer songwriter uh, struggling in New York. And your book made me feel like I wasn't alone and there was a way forward, you know? And, and I thought, okay, well, I got paid that, you know, I don't need the financial payment, but the actual payment, came out of the fact that it actually affected someone in a positive way to alleviate their suffering. Yes. You know, and I think in a lot of ways, you know, we've talked about this a little bit, but I think what you're doing, what I'm doing in some ways is alleviating suffering, you know, like in a Buddhistic way, trying to um, realize that most people don't need to have the suffering they're having. It's self-inflicted. And secondly, probably as we are doing the healing for other people, we're healing ourselves. You know, like, no so, doubt about it. you know, no doubt about it. That is exactly what it is. You know, when we spoke last time, you were telling me about uh, this monk in Japan. Who yeah. Commissioned you. Yeah. Uh, t- tell us, tell us about how that, tell us a little bit, of, give us a little bit of back on that so people understand. But h- how has that become a relationship and what's the <laughs> impact of that for you? Oh, yeah. Well, his um, name is Matsubayashi T- uh, Tetsuji. And um, what happened is that my wife, uh, JC, had asked me a couple of years ago, you know, let's go to Japan, but let's go someplace we've never gone to before. Let's get lost. Right. You know, like, and then I'm like, great. And she goes, just, you know, I said, anywhere you want to go. And she goes, no, just 
find some place you think is interesting. So I, I looked around on the internet and I found this beautiful villa that had been rebuilt and refurbished. And it's a, I think it was three or 400 year old villa. And, you know, they use this thatched roof technique that, you know, very few craftsmen can do anymore and beautifully redone, high pitched, you know, inside, you know, with like just beautiful timbered environment. So I'm like, great, let's check this out. And I, I just emailed um, the proprietor of it and uh, got an email back. And so we went down there in, in Nara, Nara, which is uh, more of Southern part of Japan. You land in Osaka and then you um, take a car, you know, into Nara. Nara is also famous for the deer, which are very tame and you can go to a deer park and literally pet them. <laughs> so Nara is beautiful and the area that we were in um, was very famous also, as I looked it up, uh, for being the birthplace of the ninja. You know, not the Hollywood ninja, but the actual ninja who were essentially were um, historically a group of guerrilla, you know, uh, villagers who decided they didn't want to have the overlords of the the warlords and the the samurai overseeing, you know, them. And so they they live in this area, uh, which you know even now is very mountainous and hard to access. You can't get in with horses, and so they had the advantage. And so ninjutsu came out of the ability to scale trees and scale rocks and you know and so there's this whole history behind it mm -hmm. so we showed up and you know in in uh matsubayashi-san has his family his wife and his sons also helping and and um he speaks some english but we spoke japanese and as we spoke we became closer friends you know and we immediately connected turns out that he's a mountain monk and um this uh syncretic religion called Shugendo. And Shugendo is a 1300-year-old religion in Japan, uh, which combines, um, you know, Taoism, Zen Buddhism, and indigenous Shinto. Mm -hmm. And um, these uh, mountain monks all dress in white, and they're famous for practicing their, um, their austerities up like under waterfalls and meditating under waterfalls. And they were the ones who trained the ninjas as well. So there's this interesting kind of tie-in between the, the villagers who were ninjas and the mountain monks who lived in the mountains and trained in the mountains and had, you know, supposedly all these incredible ability to walk on fire and, you know, the, mm -hmm. the usual, and, and actually they do fire walking ceremony. Um, so Shugendo, uh, it became something that we learned a lot about during this period because there was a shrine right next door that he had built. And I'm like, how is he doing this? Like, how is he, you know, he would come, you know, when he first met us dressed normally, and then he would suddenly like come back and say, let's do a fire ceremony where we go into the shrine. And, you know, he is now dressed in this beautiful regalia of gold and, you know, and set up. And he's just very practically switching, context switching very easily between the two worlds. Wow. And, and we're in this sacred space for like an hour and a half and drumming and taiko drumming on top of that to invoke the spirits and then the smoke's coming up and it's this incredible, you're suddenly in a different world. And then mm -hmm. you feel like, you know, Zhao Gongen, the, the main deity is there. And um, so we really connected to him and what he was doing. And, um, and, you know, on top of that, he's a CEO of a company. So he was able to do this because he was driving through this area. And he, and I said, why are you re refurbishing these houses? And he goes, he felt, what was happening was that Japanese culture was disappearing. 
because like like any country the old people were dying off and the young people were moving into the city and there was a lot of like and we would look around my wife and i and we would see literally 90 year old people out in the fields you know doing you know planting rice and taking care of their house and it's just dying off so he realized i need to start buying up these houses or they will be demolished eventually and i'm going to refurbish them so he took his CEO, you know, money and started to then do this. And then he pulled Shugendo and, you know, he'd been doing that for a while and resuscitated it. And so I was thinking, wow, this is awesome on so many levels. And so we're actually looking at buying land next to him, you know, with him so that we can, my wife and I would like to build an artist retreat out there so that uh, international people can come out and make art and also write. And what we found is that the majority, he said the majority of people who stay in these refurbished houses that he has um, are like Norwegians, Swedish people, you know, Canadians and Americans. Uh, and ironically, it is the tourism of white people into historical Japanese environments that is saving Japanese culture That's there. Wonderful. And this is the beautiful kind of multiculturalism. Yeah. So what happened is I came back, you know, we came back to the United States and about six months later, I get an email and he's got a new house he's refurbishing. And normally in a, uh, you have in a house, in Japanese traditional house, a tokonoma, which is an area with an alcove where you usually have a scroll with like, you know, characters on it where, you know, and kanji characters. And so this time he said, I'd like to have a painting. And he goes, would you do a painting for me of Zhao Gongen? Zhao Gongen being the deity of Shugendo, the most powerful one. And I said, sure, having no idea what Zhao looked like, he sent me some references and it's a, he's a blue skinned fanged deity, the fangs going upwards versus going downwards. Yep. He holds a Vajra in his right hand and he's using the sword mudra in his left hand. And he has one leg up in the air to squash ignorance and, and evil. And the, the Vajra was interesting because that is a direct tie in from Buddhism. Buddhism. It's an Indian Vajra, yep. you know, and the Japanese culture has been, taking in cultures and assimilating them for, you know, for millennia. And this was the example of that. So I ended up like um, doing the painting for him uh, on a wood panel and using Japanese paints. And I remember like, you know, um, doing it in our, our living room because my, my wife had set up a, a larger space for me you know, the studio we had was too small in order to do the painting. And she, you know, this is again, the alignment with your partner. She actually, you know, allowed me to make a I'm mess. I'm just thinking that as you were saying that, like, yeah. how wonderful that your wife is so openly honoring of that part of you. Oh, yeah. But, you know, oh, okay, yeah. well, let's do it in the living room. Wait, like, exactly. you know, most questions are like, hey, get that shit out of here. Exactly, exactly. And so I was very lucky that she's like, not only that, but she actually, like, let's hang the canvas on the walls now so that you can, like, avoid the splatter and we'll, what paints do you need? I'll buy them for you. You know, what brushes do you need? She's my producer, you know, like, so, cause I have a day job. So I come back at night, would have dinner, spend time. And then I would start on the painting. Mm -hmm. And then uh, I needed the space so I could walk back and forth to do it. And then the painting started to make itself. And this is where you come down into the, the state of like, it's, it's chaos. Like when you're laying down the paint and it's a mess, it's a mess. And, you, and there's always this moment in painting where the next stroke will either make or destroy the painting, mm -hmm. you know, like, and it's hard to kind of come back out of it. Oh, yeah. But remarkably the painting 
started to take its own life and it worked really well. Uh, and and it, what was remarkable, Dov, is that Matsubayashi-san never asked to see a sketch or a pictures in progress. He just said, send it. So we sent it and um, he loved it. And it, was, it went into the new house. Now here's the funny thing uh, is that he emailed back later and he goes, um, Johnson, he goes, I, I, I hope you don't mind, but I had to move the painting. <laughs> I go, sure. Uh, what happened? He goes, it was keeping people awake in the house when they were staying there. And I was like, what? And he goes, yeah, he goes, you instill, it's Zhao Gongen. He's in, he's in the painting. Really? And, and yeah, and it was too much. And so he goes, so what he did is he put it in his office. Uh, he has an office there too. Yeah. And he says, he, it's right over like the desk. And he goes, he, he now judges people. He said, and his son validated this too because he was there too. And he said, people either come in and completely ignore the painting, like it's not even there, you know, and, and they're doing business. Or it's the exact opposite where they can't stop talking about it and seeing it. And he goes, I judge people on whether I'm going to do business with them on whether they acknowledge Zhao Gongen or not. And I thought that was kind of awesome. So that was the, that was, so we're still friends and we're, um, we, uh, we went back and we visit them and, um, you know, the idea ultimately is that we will build this retreat, um, in Japan and, uh, you know, be bi-coastal between, you know, Los Angeles and, and Japan. But how, I mean, what a great way, place for us to actually conclude because here's an, you know, an act of real inspired art, yeah. creativity at its totally inspired place, supported by your partner, your wife. Mm -hmm. um, you're doing your day job. You leave that, you come home, you're in this creative space. Your wife is fully supportive of you. You create something mm -hmm. that goes to another country, mm -hmm. to another culture, is placed there and becomes an influence of business. Yeah. Becomes a direct influence of business. What a wonderful, uh, heroic journey <laughs> from the contemplation of the idea, would you do a painting? Mm-hmm. You go away. Well, I've still got a day job, buddy, but okay, I'm going to go mm -hmm. do my day job at Hulu TV. And mm -hmm. I got all this, you know, I've got my yep. demands. I'm an executive and all the conformist things that one has to do in order to pay the rent, quote unquote. Mm -hmm. And I go home. I'm going to go home. I'm going to have dinner with my wife, who is my producer, who supports me, who has created this environment. And I'm going to be in the chaos mm -hmm. of creating until that moment when that that certain stroke comes in and you go, Oh, mm -hmm. it's there. It's coming forward now. And then it gets created and then it's shipped to another country, put in the place it's supposed to be in, but it's the wrong place mm -hmm. where, it and it has to be moved to where it becomes this influence and decider of business. I just think that's a, such a powerful heroic journey. Oh yeah. No, it, it uh, it was amazing. And, and the thing about it is that he asked me how much I wanted for the painting. And I said, nothing, you know, it's, you know, I said, you pay, you pay for the paints and the shipping. And I said, I can't, I, I felt, I talked to my wife about it. I felt, I felt weird making 
uh, a religious artifact that I would be paid for. Now, I know there's a history of that, you know, from Michelangelo to whoever, yeah. but it felt wrong. But what's interesting also is that at the very end, and there's a video we did, I signed a painting in the back by taking uh, my hand and putting it in blue paint. Which is the same as your book cover. Exactly. And I slammed it against the back as a signature. And wow. then, so the hand in this case means something different. <laughs> and I slammed it, you know, and then I signed it. And then he, when he received the painting, he countersigned it. Like he also said, I am part of this too. And I'm like, awesome. Well, and then, and that's how we ended up, you know, um, when it came down to the discussion, but like what's on the cover of the book, you know, this is literally the signature yeah. on the back of the painting that was Ooh. used. So that, that's kind of like, you know, the full circle moment because there's an energy, what's in Japanese called ki, or the mm -hmm. Chinese called chi, um, yeah. that I do believe was imparted into the painting. And that's why it had the presence. And then I wanted that energy to come back into the book, which is going out. And that's why the cover is this. And the cover is also this way because the handprint is also the most childlike thing you can do when you're a kid, when you're yeah. painting. Yeah. It's also the oldest signature in recorded human history of art. It's 40,000 years old in, in paintings, in, I believe, in Indonesia, caves. that in the caves, you know, all the way to France, you know, that yeah. they have this, I am here. Yes. This is me. And so that was the other reason that it was done. Beautiful. But I also really love, um, it's something I had spoken about many, many years ago. And, and I really, I, I knew artists got it, but I don't think other people really got it, which is what I talked about was, um, is the artist the artist was my question. Mm. And people said, well, what do you mean? And I said, well, is the artist the artist because the artist creates or is the artist in a relationship with the, with the medium? So of course that's true, but is the artist also in relationship with the catalyst? So this, this mountain monk who countersigns in my mind, mm -hmm. so I'm not saying it's the truth in my mind, acknowledges that he's the catalyst yeah and therefore part of the creative process Absolutely. so now there's three things there there is the artist being you there is the medium mm -hmm. and there is the catalyst but as with all things nothing is what it is it's so the sort of saying about dragons and understanding there's multiple layers because if we look at if i walk in and i see that painting my first thing is well who's the artist okay it's john Okay, so, mm -hmm. so then I go, well, okay, well, what did, what inspired this painting? Well, yeah. this guy is a CEO, is a mountain mm -hmm. monk, blah, blah, blah. He's the inspiration. So now we've got, we've got the bookends of that. Mm -hmm. What's the material? Well, you know, it was painted on this, using that. Mm -hmm. Okay, what else do we not know? Well, actually, the producer, the person mm -hmm. in the background, the person who's serving this mm -hmm. and really comes to it from this, uh, the, not servitude, but service. Yeah. who comes to the art as service was your wife. Yeah. You know, yeah. and, and, and well, what else is in that? Well, also the person who pays you to do your executive job that allows you the space oh, yeah. in which to create this. Absolutely. And all these things are part of this creative form. And, and I love that that strips away the ego of it 
and just says, mm-hmm. this is a collab, that art is in so many ways a collaboration of so many amazing things that we don't think of. You oh, know, yeah. that the, the, the UN, for instance, is actually part of the catalyst of the UN is Adolf Hitler. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right? right, 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 because... It's a reaction to, exactly. it's yeah. a catalyst of. Right? It's stalling. It's, a re- it's not, it's not, it, it's, the catalyst is just as important. And again, yeah. this is where we go back to resilience and, and the crabs in the bucket that pull us down in the hard times that actually yeah. birth us yeah. in a magnificent way, birth creativity and become the rebellion of something. Oh yeah, no, and, and I, I think you're right. It requires, I mean, the cliche it requires a village to make, you know, there's no singular artist making anything. And um, it, it was interesting too, the, the idea that the art comes through you. Yes. Um, because um, I just have to be a good conduit for the thing. I, I believe at a certain point, the painting was making itself. Yes. And I, I was just there as its hands to make it happen. And I heard this podcast the other day with uh, Debbie Millman talking to Linda Berry, the cartoonist. And she said that the biggest advice that she got reverberated with me was that she did a drawing when she was a young artist and she showed it to her teacher. And she goes, I don't know if I like this drawing or not. I don't know if it's any good or not. And her teacher said, Linda, it's none of your business. I love that. You know, and immediately, like, I thought, she's right. The job of the creator is to make and to put it out there. And and then it's its own thing. And then whether it's any good or not, it's it's impossible to say, right? You know, like, again, the, the painting for me, I was getting fed and I was being rewarded in the moment of painting it. Literally... And my wife can attest, it would, I would be there and then it'd be six hours later and my, I was still standing there and I realized I have to go to the bathroom, you know, because I, my back's killing me because the painting had told me, you stay here until we're done. Yes. You know, and it kept going. But at the end, I almost had the same thing. Is this any good? And I realized that I can't judge it. You can't you know, like, there's, it, it is just a thing that happened. Did and you I find that with your book too? I'm sorry? Did you find that with your book as oh, well? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And again, giving... It's the art of creation is you don't know. Uh, no. I, one of the members of my team was reading me this article, and she goes, you know, we, we just need to look at this, and, and she says, can you go through it? So I go through it, and I go, this is really good. And she said, yeah, I know, you wrote it. And I said, oh, yeah. yeah, but I've forgotten that I, how good oh, yeah. it was. Yeah. And it's only two years later that I'm reading this article. Like, damn, that was good. But I, we don't know when we're in it. No, you don't. Like, you can't I describe I, the water if you're a fish. Exactly. It, it was a, with the book. It was the same thing. First of all, I give credit to my wife again. She's the one who told me to write the book because I'd given a speech at South by Southwest, and at the end, I, I was asked, like, you know, do you have a books you recommend, or do you have a book? You know, I'm like, no. And then she, my wife said, well, why don't you write the book? And I'm like, um, like, okay, well, I'll write the book, you know, and, and the interesting thing for me, though, um, you know, as I thought it was just writing, I don't know what I was writing. It was, it was like you're saying, like the fish's notes in water. And then when I did the audio book recording for it, you know, a month ago, I was reading it because you, know, you have to read it. And I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> you know, I, I'd forgotten all this. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty 
not bad you know like and, and it was weird because like i was like very meta like is it weird that i'm saying this isn't bad and i wrote it but i yeah. forgot that i wrote it you know it's very loopy right it is you know yeah. i it, totally get it i understand yeah. i i've been there with my art because i did paint up into my 30s i've been there with my art where i've stood there and like i don't know i think this is probably going to be one for the garbage can and then come back and seen it when I've had it turned away from me and seen it a week later in, in the spare bedroom, like, yeah, Damn, that's pretty good. Yeah. And, and definitely with my writing, I have the same thing. And, yeah. and at the same time, I've also had things that I've looked at and gone, wow, that's terrible. Yeah. Well, I mean, you, you get better at craft. I mean, it just, I yeah. believe that in quantity yes. begets quality. So I wouldn't worry about getting better in terms of your craft. It just happens. Yeah. But, but the thing that's interesting is I love the fact that, um, you know, it's none of your business. It's a great I way. I love that. That. You, that your whole job is not to sit there and, and fret over what you, your latest book or your latest article is any good. Just put it out there. Just create you know, and create. Release. And um, you know, the, the of the articles that I've written uh, for LinkedIn, and I've written twenty now. You know, as part of a lead into the book's release, the one that reverberated the most so far. Uh, has been the one that was about doing something beyond your day job. Because I realize at core, everyone is doing a thing that they have to do to make money. And they know something is bothering them. And that they haven't, they're not scratching that itch of the thing that they, and they, they're almost forgetting like a memory that's going away. Like, what was it? What was it the thing that I was supposed to do? And it's only when they can release the dragon that you're putting it. Yep. That they can again remember their original face. This is what I was supposed to be doing. Why haven't I been doing this? Holy crap. Am I too old now? No, because if the dragon's released, you're never too old. You know, you're suddenly there. And so I think, I, you know, going back to uh, what you were saying earlier, I think that's going to be a powerful book. Thank you. And then the na name of my new book is going to be uh, Beyond Your Day Job. Fabulous. So that'll be the next one. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, John, we, you know, we, we're out of time here and listen, mate, I have loved this conversation. Same here. Right. And, uh, by the way, if you're listening or watching this show, um, and you've loved it, remember that John is also on our other podcast. He's on the leadership and loyalty. And we'll talk, talk on that show a lot more about the specifics of his book and how it applies to leadership and, and being a creative leader. So mm. there's some great material in there, but for this show, mm. I am extremely grateful and I would love for you to tell our viewers and our listeners where they can find out more about you and how, and how to get sure. in touch with you and all the things that you do. Yeah. I'm on all the social networks. Um, but if you go to um, John dash couch.com, so it's John with a hyphen, couch.com it's because somebody else took the url already <laughs> um and um it, you can also um you know go to um you know the art of creative rebellion on instagram and you can also go to uh, this is a little bit harder to uh, write out but it's titanium sky on twitter which is titanium t-i-t-a-n-i-u-m s-k-y um on twitter is my handle there but if you just go to um, john-couch.com, you'll find you know links to the different things I'm doing, including the painting uh, that we were talking about, um, the uh, Zhao Gongen painting. Fantastic. So 
Um, yeah. And uh, of course, if you have any questions, you can also contact me through that website. Fabulous. Yeah. Again, thank you, John, so much. Yeah. And for you, the listener, as always, stay curious, my friends, stay curious. Because the world is changed by your curiosity, your willingness to be courageous about your curiosity and create a rebellion right there. Absolutely. Next time, Dolph Baron, Curiosity Bites. Stay curious, my friends. Stay curious about it.